it's, a, it's great to be back with you all. Um, many of you know that last week I was on vacation and um, so encouraged to uh, listen to the audio of uh, Brandon uh, teach us last week about worship. was incredibly encouraged by it. I thought he did a phenomenal job. And uh, many of you not, may not know this, but last week was literally his first time preaching and it sounded like his hundredth. And so uh, really, really encouraged by Brandon. Um, tonight is, uh, tonight's going to be a tough one. And uh, that automatically excites all of you. You're like, all right, sweet. It's, it's just a really, really interesting text. And so I, I want to, if I can, get us into it a little bit. What we're doing here is we teach through the Bible verse by verse. Uh, we uh, choose, by God's leading, a book of the Bible to teach and preach and learn in the hopes that by teaching verse by verse it does a few things. First of all, we can't escape the hard truth. So we're not just going to pick texts that are easy for us to teach and preach. We're going to have to wrestle with difficult things. But one of the biggest outcomes outside of just seeing more deeper realities of God's character is our hope is that you learn more how to study God's Word in your personal life by the fact that we teach it verse by verse. So I feel like because we've been in Hebrews for uh, several months that we need a little bit of a recap, not by my words going through the audience and the author, but looking at the text. And so what I want to do with you to show you two verses from the first four chapters that will sum up for us where we've been so far in the first part of Hebrews. So put up this verse here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, speaking of Jesus here, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. I really feel like you could just read that and say, have a good night, everyone. Because that, like when the Word just holds power, and when we believe that the Word has power and does cut, you read something about that of Christ and it just gets me excited. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. They're angels and He's Son. And so Jesus, what we learned in chapter 1, is more superior to the cosmic being angels. It's really the theme of Hebrews overall, that Jesus' superiority sits on high. Are we together? Chapter 2, we saw this. Since therefore the children uh, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise part, partook of the same things. He came, flesh and blood, humbled himself, that through death, his death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, not by his death, but by his resurrection. He dies, resurrects, and shows Satan like you can't hold me in the grave. I'm in control of this. Shows that he conquers death and therefore conquers the devil in verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery because Jesus conquers the grave. Then all of us can celebrate with having shared in that conquering of death. Chapter 3. Now Moses, here we go, the all-star, the rock star of the Jewish faith, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is not just superior to angels. He's also superior to the man that the Jews lift and exalt to a high place, Moses. Which makes Jesus not a man, but a God-man, the Son of God. And lastly, here in chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest in Christ, and this has been the theme of our last several weeks, 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our hope. Let us hold fast to the things of God, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet remains without sin. And this has been so encouraging to me in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus leaves heaven, humbles Himself, and therefore can sympathize with all of your temptations. And so it makes Him an approachable Savior. Amen? Now, that's where we've been. But where are we going? Well, this is, this is going to be a tough one. And I want to I help you understand why it's tough. Okay? Uh, all of us, if we were to go around in a moment of uh, depression and share like the worst day of our life, right, it'd be a horrible night, wouldn't it? Like everyone would just like, and mine's worse and mine's worse. Well, uh, one of the worst days of my life was in ministry. I was um, in my fifth year as an employee uh, through uh, for the church. I've been uh, in ministry since I was 18 years old. And I w- I'd been asked by a friend uh, to come and preach and fill in that morning. So what that meant was I was uh, going to get to my employment on time, but I'd set things up and I had an assistant and we were working together. But when I came back from preaching at that other church, waiting for me in my office were two uh, elders, and I use that term very loosely. Um, and they, um, they proceeded literally when I walked in my office to, uh, to yell at me, um, to uh, dehumanize me, to make me feel... Uh, very weak and feeble. And I don't know if you've ever had an elder of the church, someone that's supposed to be representing the things of God, leading the church community, being a man of prayer. I don't know if you've ever had an elder yell at you and point their finger at you and stuff, but it's really, really tough. Especially when the allegations that he was saying, basically that I didn't care about the ministry, uh, though I was ministering all that morning. Um, Anyway, the thing that topped it all off was when when he called me a, a boy. Now, like, okay, like some, of, like some of us deserve that. But when you're 22 years old and um, married and I, I had a job and I'm responsible, like I'm just, I'm just, like I wasn't a boy. And I'm just, I'm not saying that pridefully. But when someone calls you an infant when you're an adult, and many of you have had that experience, like it's, it's really, really rough. Because like, it literally takes away this piece of your identity. And though I was affirmed in who I was, still when someone says it, right, no matter how much you don't believe it, it's still tough, isn't it? Like it could be the most ridiculous, non-truthful word. But because they said it, it's, it still seems true. Now, the tough part of tonight is this. The text, not me, the text is going to call some of you who would claim yourself to be adults is going to call you an infant. It's going to call you a child. It's going to peer in as the word cuts to your innermost place and call you tonight to the table. And so I approach this text tonight with a humble heart, with a desire to teach you through it, with a desire to not uh, have a sense of condemnation here tonight, but to leave hopeful. So are we together? It's going to be tough. Let's learn. Let's grow. Let's examine the text and then we'll dive in together. We, we, we good? So turn with me in Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 11. And we'll read all the way through verse 14 here. And then we'll get going. Uh, as tough as tonight is, 
I'm really anxious because I think the fruit of this evening could be tremendous. Verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have uh, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Alright, so we got some milk stuff in here, we got some child stuff in here, a whole lot of words. Let's break it down, alright? Now, I want to show you the last, uh, the last two verses of last week, if we could. Do we have that slide? Verse 9 and 10. And being made perfect, this is what we studied two weeks ago, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of what? Melchizedek. I told you two weeks ago, man of mystery, eight mentions in the Scripture, six of the mentions in Hebrews, his origination in the early parts of Genesis. He's just mentioned Melchizedek, and now what does he say in verse 11? About this we have much to say. What is he talking about? Melchizedek. Proven by the fact that when we get a couple chapters later, he's going to spend a lot of time on Melchizedek, which seems really interesting because no one knows about him. Like he's just a man of mystery. But he says this, I've got much to say about Melchizedek. And it's hard to explain. Like this whole Melchizedek thing is going to be tough. Listen. It's like he comes to a place as he's writing, inspired by God, where he knows his readers so well, it's like he he gets not discouraged, but he gets poignant. It's like all of a sudden there's this rush of authority in him where he realizes that he's been begging their hearing all along. He said things like, you remember this? Consider Jesus. He says, take ear and listen to this. And now he gets to this place where he writes Melchizedek and he's like, are these people even ready for this? Like, can I even dive into the depth of who Melchizedek is? Because they need to get it. Because they need to know that Jesus didn't come from the Aaron line, that he came from a king of Salem line, which makes Jesus a different high priest than Aaron. They need to get this. But it's like he takes a second and he questions whether or not they will. And so he says it's hard to explain. And I know for some of you, you'd be like, yeah, that's the Bible. <laughs> like... Melchizedek, nothing. Like, what about like John 1 1? You know, like, I, the Bible is hard to explain. And I want to I just take a second and encourage you all. Because I think, I think some of you, like, started out your Bible learning in Revelation 8, right? Which was a bad idea. You're like, I don't know who the beasts are. What is this golden thing? Like, you know, and, and so you're forever scarred because, you, you know, you're like, I'll just start in the end and then we'll fill in the gaps in the beginning, right? And so you read literally the most confusing book in the scripture, and then you're like, and then you read Left Behind to follow it up as your commentary, right? And so now you're ready to walk away from the faith. Like, that's not, that's not a good place to start. But, but listen, I know sometimes you open your word, right? Let's be real. I know sometimes you open your word, and you're like, I don't know what this is even, I have no idea what this is saying. I want to encourage you with this. As complex as the scripture seems at times, if you understand the simple message of the entire Bible, that's the thing that really needs to grab our hearts. Is that God created, that man sinned, and therefore disconnected himself from God, his responsibility. God and man then separated, 
and then God working His plan out of redemption through His Son, Jesus. And as we already read, He dies, conquers death, and raises again so that you can have life. That's the whole Bible. All of the Bible pointing to the person of Jesus. So as hard as it is to explain sometimes, if you constantly get to Jesus, you can't go wrong. Like every word in the Bible we believe here is pointing to the person of Christ. But he doesn't just say it's hard to explain because you're whatever. He says this, since you have become dull of hearing. Now when I first moved to my house in St. Charles a few years ago, what I soon realized is Lambert Airport was in my backyard. Um, I would be out in the back and like the path of the planes literally goes, I've like worked it out with a protractor, literally goes directly over my house. I mean, plane after plane after plane, Southwest, Delta, AA, it doesn't matter. They all go over my house, you know? And the first two months we're living there, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, I feel like I'm downtown St. Louis right now. The noise is horrible. And then over time, what happens? Like, like soon, like my relatives come and they're like, do planes land back here? You know, like what? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't even know that. Oh, yeah, I guess there's, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess we do have some traffic, but. After time, right, you don't, you don't notice it. Uh, the Greek word here is, is nothros, and it means this. You, you, de, uh, negligent, dull of hearing. Uh, literally in the Greek, listen, stupidly forgetful. That's what he's saying here. Seriously. What happens to believers of Jesus when a phrase like God is love becomes noise? What happens to believers when the powerful statement that God is love, that He's gracious, that He's faithful, that He's worthy, when all of that just becomes noise, background. Like it's still there, right? Like the planes didn't go away. The, the noise was still there. I just didn't notice it anymore. That's what He's calling out. There's people that are dull of hearing, negligent. And so because of that, like I cannot explain what I need to explain here. And so listen, He takes some moments to get very harsh with his readers. And as I was on the other end of an elder putting his finger literally in my chest, as football memories were going through my mind at that point, I restrained myself. But my thought is, I can tackle you through this wall right now. Take your finger out of my chest. Don't ever call me a boy again. I received it in grace. And I would pray that you would do the same here. So look at this. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be what? teachers. Now this is interesting, isn't it? This means that there's an expectation. The expectation is, is that at some point, a follower of Christ will move from a follower to a teacher. That's the expectation. It's like this. Um, how many of you guys are in, like, went to school for education or secondary ed or something? Okay, good. Six, we're a church of educators. Good. Um, well, five of us. Um, it'd be like this. So you go to school to get your degree in education and your professors are teaching you and they're pouring into you and, and, then, like, and then you do the student teaching gig and then, and then you graduate and then you do nothing. You've been trained to teach and then you don't teach. It, like you were trained to one day take the dry erase marker, which we all long to do, right? When the biology teacher's up there and she's throwing out, if I could just hold that marker, right? And then you do nothing with it. There's an expectation on followers of Jesus 
that they will progress from point A to teacher. Now he says this, and this is literally what I believe maybe one of the most critical statements he makes of believers in the entire book of Hebrews. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Do you hear his passion? Like he starts out a little bit, a little bit soft and he's getting into it. And now he's like, I, I picture him pointing a finger. Now you need someone to teach you what? What does he say? Again. You've done been taught it and now you need to hear it again. The basic principles of the, what does he say? The oracles of God. And all of a sudden we feel like we're in stinking, you know, whatever, the uh, Lord of the Rings or something, right? Let, let me explain this. We see oracles of God twice in the New Testament. Acts 7 is one. And both mention 2 Peter, I believe, is the other. Don't quote me on that. Both of the mentions of oracles of God, both have to do with the Old Testament. The doctrine, the theology of the Old Testament. So when he says you need to be retaught again, the oracles, the basic oracles of the things of God, he's saying you you just need to be taught again the basics of who God is. Now, the reason why I say this is one of the most critical statements that he makes of us in the entire book of Hebrews is because some of us have the audacity to think that your sin only affects you. Some of you have the audacity, the pride, the arrogance, to think that your sin only affects you. What he's saying is, this is going to take time to pour back into you who there was an expectation in the first place, right? That you would become a teacher. And you're so negligent in your hearing, so stupidly forgetful in your understanding, that now someone is going to have to take their precious time when there are many people who want to learn. And they're going to have to re-teach you. You have the audacity to think that your sin only affects you. Now the easy examples are things like adultery, where obviously like it affects generations and people. Uh, where things like where pastors fall, uh, where things like um, the greed of a dad gets a family into great financial stress. And it's clear that those things affect families. Those are the obvious. An obvious thing for me in college uh, where my sin affected others was we were a part of a big a campus revival. Many of you guys have heard the story. Mostly because of naivety on my part and a lack of discipleship, I literally found myself leading like four or five different ministries when I was 19 years old. But no one had ever taught me how to pour in other leaders. So what starts happening after a little while? You start thinking you're pretty stinking cool. I mean, I'm calling the shots for four or five different ministries. I'm preaching all the time, and I start thinking about, like, I'm, I've got this ministry thing down. When all the while there were young men waiting to be poured into, waiting to be discipled, waiting to be taught, and instead it began to be I wanted the glory for myself. I was leading this movement. I could control the shots. And so my sin, my pride, affected others. Those are the obvious, Right? How about the not-so-obvious? Listen to this. Your secret sin. And I'm not just talking about porn. Because like it's like constantly in the church we talk about like the big three, right? And I don't even know what the other two are, but I know the first one's porn, right? (laughs) Right? But listen, um, whatever your secret sin is, listen to this. And it could be lust, greed, gossip, whatever. And then a Christian brother of yours comes to you looking for counsel. You haven't been meeting with the Lord. You haven't been on your face. You've been hiding, cowardly, 
behind the closed doors of your room or your house or your situation, and you find yourself in a moment now where another believer, because you put on a great mask, comes to you seeking counsel. And because you feel like you need to fill your expectation of being the counselor in the moment, the person who's really listening, the person who has something good to say, the person who may even quote a scripture, you holy and righteous person, we have the audacity in that moment to literally look at those people, though inwardly we are a wreck, and act as if we're giving counsel that's godly. And you think that your sin, your private secret sin, doesn't affect others? Think of the damage that could be done in that moment in time. You're like, but I quoted Scripture. Yeah, with what motive? With what heart? With what perspective? With what thought process? I can tell you this right now. There have been moments when people, especially in my past, sought counsel from me. I was nowhere near ready to give them counsel. And what I should have said is, you know what? You don't need a word of counsel from me right now. That's what I want to see. I want to see people with enough guts and gumption to be able to, when asked of counsel, though they haven't been, been meeting with the Lord at all, just to be able to say, I, I'm not your person right now. Like, I need some repenting of my own heart before I can even think of describing the things of God. And what does he say? There are people that should be teachers, but they're not. And so because of that, all of these people waiting to learn the deep truths, even the basic truths of God, are waiting. They're waiting in the wings. But now I and these people are going to have to reinvest their time in you because you're dull of hearing. Are you with me? You see what he's saying? Now this, this gets even deeper here in a second. I just want to encourage you with this. Your sin affects others. Because it's easy just to sit in our own sin and in our own bubble and just think, I can just sit in this by myself and all will be okay and I'll just keep asking forgiveness and take advantage of grace. And if you live in that perspective, I'm saying that you're wrong. You as a follower of Christ are called to grow and be a teacher. And anything that does not lead to that point, my friends, is affecting the body of Christ. He goes on here to say this. You need milk, not solid food. Let's talk babies for a second. Love me some babies. Um, my youngest, Maddox, is nearing a year old. Uh, I'm not a mom. I'm a dad. Okay, So moms have a different perspective. They have a different connection here, right? We together? But what I know this about kids is this. Uh, it's good for them to start out on milk. Fair enough, right? And they go through this process of weaning off of milk eventually onto solid food. If Maddox popped out in week two, we were trying to feed him steak and potatoes, things wouldn't go so well on the innards of my son. See what I'm saying? He's, listen, he's not ready uh, they even make foods now called graduates. Have, have you guys seen these foods? Are you parents, have you guys seen these things? My, my son has this little like, box of thing called graduates, and it's like little cheese puffs for kids that only have like a tooth so they can you know, like, ch- chisel on like a squirrel or something, right? Like, that's the process. But what, what he's saying in this case is, is you, you, you need the base level infancy. Like you're not even close to being ready for solid food, and what he's saying is you should be. Are we together in that? That's what he's saying. Now, he's going to flesh this out. And we're getting ready to evaluate where you're at tonight. And I want to help you. And I want to help myself. But I just want you to get in the mindset here of the writer. He's very passionate at this point. Here's what he says in verse 13. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. 
Now this is the point where he flat calls adults children. And the reality is, I know for sure that when it comes to the things of God in this room, we have 30-year-olds going on 14. Is that not disheartening to anyone else? We also have, on the encouraging side, 17-year-olds going on 35. And there's some very specific even 17-year-olds I have in my mind in this body who are a constant encouragement to me, and I'm always thinking, you are well wise beyond your years. Praise God for that. And so it begins to feel like, okay, so, so is he saying that milk isn't good? For everyone who lives on milk is, is unskilled. Is he, is he like trying to kill this? No, milk's not, no, he's not saying that at all. Milk is a necessary developmental issue, isn't it? You have to have milk. Eventually, you get off milk. His point is this. Next slide. Next slide here with me, if you could. There are two categories in verse 13. First, those who should be on milk. Well, who are those people? New followers of Jesus. That's who those people are. The people who should be on milk are people who have just come to the understanding of who Christ is, of what grace is, of what redemption is, of what forgiveness is. Those are people, and the Scripture says, they're unskilled. Why? Because they're learning. Maddox can barely talk. He will one day hopefully talk. He's growing in it. He's weaning off milk and getting on solid food. It's productivity. It's, gro- it's growth. And some of you right here should 100% be on milk. But there's a second category. Next slide. Those who shouldn't be. Those who shouldn't be on milk at all. And, and those, those people, and there's some here in this room, like literally, you've been a follower of Jesus for years and years and years, and you're still on milk. And what the writer is saying is there is a different expectation of you. Now, I want to say two more things and then we'll dive into something else. It's not all your fault. You're like, sweet, you know, that's good, I'm off the hook. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, When new Christians often become believers, what happens? Have you ever seen a new Christian and it it, it appears as though they've had like 300,000 pixie sticks? Have you ever seen this? Right? But it's like six or seven months worth. I mean, a new believer, and there are still many of you who have been you know, a believer for years and you're still acting like this, and I love it. But new believers, they have this energy. Why? They've straight been saved from something that they realized. Like, I was, I was dead and now I'm alive. I'm a new creation and that's good. So here's what happens. Often the church looks at those people And because of their emotion and how closely connected they seem to God, they do not disciple them. Why? Because it appears like they're good to go. And that is one of the worst things we can ever do as a church, and we do it. And we need to repent of it. We look at a new believer, it seems like they're good to go, we tell them to read John, we pat them on the back, and we say good luck. And some of you grew up in churches where that was the case for you. You came to Christ and you were excited. But guess what happened after five or six months? You soon realized this thing ain't on emotion. That you need some substance. You need to learn of who the character of God is. But the reality is the church never took you under its wing and poured into you milk 
They just expected you to learn and understand solid food. Have you ever experienced this? And I pray that we as a church will never ever land in that. So some of you, you're a product of I hope not this church, and I hope not, but I'm sure some are. You're a product of a lack of discipleship. But there's others of you that have become slothful, that have become stupidly forgetful, that have become negligent in your hearing. And so I want to tell you, what is milk then? Next slide. What is milk? We, we better define it, right? Like when we're saying what is milk, we, we need an evaluative measure. This is what we believe here milk is. A basic understanding of what the Bible is and how to read it. Basic, I mean, a new Christian, as they're learning, they should be able to communicate what the Bible is. Right? As they grow, as they're developed, they should be able to communicate that. They should have a basic understanding of creation outside of, it's in Genesis 1. Okay, well done. You know, that's fairly obvious. I know you also know the end is Revelation, you know, twenty twenty one. but, right? A basic understanding of creation. These people should also have a basic understanding of sin and the curse. They should be able to point to scriptures outside of the Romans road, my friend. Okay? Outside of some track that you received at some point, milk is going and growing in this understanding. Now, l- listen, let's just stop right now. Let's stop right now. Can we disagree right now? American Christianity has lowered what milk is. Look, just say, Jesus is good, He forgives you of your sins, that's milk. The rest of it, we should just know. Haven't you seen this? We've lowered this, this is milk right here. Closed-handed, biblical truth that all Christians in their early development should grow and learn. Next is, uh, young Christians should start to learn and grow in the idea of covenant. Like, how does... God start this covenant in Genesis 12 with Abraham. And how does that flesh out with the Jewish nation? And how does that culminate in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments? Like all these things should just be rattling off our mouths as we're developing redemption and salvation. How God saves. What's the process? Where are the scriptures? How can I communicate it? God's character. The fact that He's omniscient and omnipotent and faithful and good and glorious. And not just all of those words, but the scriptures. Because I feel like young Christians, they just learn a lot of lingo. I don't want young Christians to learn lingo. Anyone else? I want them to learn the Word. And when they learn the Word, the lingo comes in power. Anybody else? I feel like when I was growing up, everyone just taught me the right words and how to wear the right Christian stupid youth group t-shirt, right? This is how you wear it. Make sure it's iron on the bottom. I don't care. You know, I just, I want to know the Word and I want young Christians to know the Word too. God's character in the Trinity, an under, a basic understanding of the Trinity, worship and prayer. How do these spiritual disciplines get fleshed out? The church, what the church is, what the body of Christ is, what are the sacraments? Why do we take the Lord's Supper? Why do we baptize people? And so you're starting to evaluate, right? Like, are, are, you, are you one of those people that long ago became a follower of Jesus, but you're already looking at this and you're like, I... I'm not sure. It's tough, right? We've lessened the standards so far that we've just accepted as people are expected to grow to be teachers. That you can just say, Jesus is good and all's well. And that's it. That's a good start, but it's only a start. You should have a basic understanding of spiritual gifts. Mark, did you say spirit? Yeah, I did. 
that scares me. Okay, but it's in the Bible, and so we better wrestle with it. All right? What does it mean? Spiritual gifts and also missional living. How do I take this stuff and not just pound it in my dome, but live it? Because that's the other aspect that often we see young Christians going through. Okay, learn all this. Here's the 90-page textbook. It really won't change your life at all, but it will be great for you to know. No, like it gets to living on mission. My life is completely changed, completely different. So ask yourself right now, just in a moment of pause, and we'll do this here again. You feel like, you feel like you're one of those. Still on milk? Still sucking the resources of others who should be training and teaching younger believers? We're always in training. It's just a matter of what we're training on. A deeper understanding of creation. A deeper understanding of curse. A de- you guys see what I'm saying? Right? Next uh, slide. Verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What is the Scripture saying? It's saying life. It changes life. When you were a young Christian, this is 100% legitimate. You made some poor decisions still based on your flesh. You're growing. You're learning, like, what does it look like to throw it all away? Many of you guys, many of you I know, struggle with alcohol, smoking pot, all kinds of things before coming to Jesus. And in those first, like, two, three, four weeks, months, it's tough learning what it means to literally just rid of the flesh and cling to the cross, isn't it? What, what the Scripture is saying here is, is there's some grace there as you grow. But as you grow, you grow in your ability to discern good from evil and then to make decisions based upon that. The reality is, in your practice, many of you have been believers for six, seven, eight, nine years, and you're still living like an infant. Making the decisions that an infant will make. And what decisions do infants make? Have you ever had one? Give me whatever I want now, and if I don't, I'm going to scream. You know, like that's what an infant does. They're not learning what good and evil is. They're just evil. That's what children are, naturally, inherently sinful. They are. It's true. It's Scripture. Right? It is. Now, the Scripture says this. Those folks have powers of discernment and it's revealed in their life. Okay? Now, all of this, well and good, I feel like some of us have been kicked a bit. But there's not, there's not a lack of hope. So I want to talk to four different categories of people. Is that okay? Can I do that? You don't have a choice, but I'm going to do it anyway. All right? The, the first category of folks are to those who are on milk and should be. Can I just talk to you right now? Newer, younger believers. You're on milk and you should be. Can I first say, like, yes. Like, praise God. So excited about the fact that you've realized God's grace. All right? I want you to put up that second milk slide for me. That second milk slide with the list of all the things. Here at Matthias, listen to this. We have an opportunity for those of you who are on milk and should be. All of these things that are listed right here are the exact chapter titles 
of an entire discipleship book that we have put together to take you under our wings and teach you these things. And so for those of you here tonight, you're like, you know what? Like, I've been coming here, I'm young in the faith, no one's really taken me under their wing, I'm coming on Wednesdays, which is great, I maybe even am going to a lot of families, without, which I would certainly encourage to the young believers. Let me say this, if you're here tonight and you're interested in being discipled, being taken under someone's wing and taught these things, shown life, what does the Christian faith look like? Afterwards tonight, there's a place for you just to come up here and sign up and say, I'm interested in being discipled. I'm a person who's on milk and should be, and I just want to be encouraged. I want to learn these things, and no one's doing it. We need to start taking responsibility as a church. When we first came out with the discipleship stuff, it just seemed like a nice idea, right? Like, let's do this. It's biblical. But do you guys see? There are more learners than there are teachers. And so we better start getting serious about it. And I hope that most of the seriousness comes from seeing that there's many of you that should be teachers and aren't. So, if you're on milk and you should be, seek discipleship. There's an opportunity for you here to respond to that. Second category of people. To those who are on milk and shouldn't be. I don't know how to say this in the most loving way possible, but I will try. Do not wait another second to repent of your error. To repent of your dull, slothful hearing that has caused you to isolate yourself and believe that your sin only affects you. It doesn't. It's affecting all of us. We're all called to be the body of Christ, join together, be on mission together. And if we're constantly having to pull you along then we're not able to focus on the hungry new believer. Repent now. And I just want to encourage you with this as well. Some of you just need to be trained on what it looks like to be a disciple. Amazing thing, next Monday night, here at 6, uh, 6.30 to 8.30, all of you have an opportunity to sign up, same place. I just want to be trained on what it looks like to be a teacher. Jared Corazon, our discipleship director, is going to walk you through a very practical way that we have put into implementation what it looks like to, to be a teacher. You haven't been. You've been weak and cowardly, and it's time to turn and repent. The third category of people here as we're closing down are to those who are on solid food, mature believers. You have a good understanding of these things, but you're not a teacher yet. You haven't started discipling yet. Can I ask you this? What are you, what are you waiting on? Are you waiting on the call to be clear when Jesus said, go and make disciples? Was that not clear enough? Are you waiting for someone to completely hold your hand and walk you along through it? Some of you, on solid, mature food, you need to even go to this training again. Be re-encouraged. I think some of you like think like this is just stuff that as a church where it's like, our people need a disciple, and that's going to make us look really good. Look, we're just trying to follow the Bible. We're just trying to follow it. And we're trying the best we can, and I know we fail. We're trying the best we can to equip you to follow your call. Are you with me? And so the only way for us to do that is to help teach you what it looks like to be a disciple. And so if you're on solid food, I'll tell you right now, we're going to send out a list tomorrow already to our covenant members. 
I'm sure, of a list. Jared, how long? How, how many people have, do you already have just waiting to be discipled? 25 that are on a list already. And we've got people in here that are able to teach and are sitting on the bench because they're fearful. With the Holy Spirit comes authority, my brothers. It's time to start sitting in that. And so all the others, that will, there will be 45, 50 people waiting to be poured into. What else do we need to be doing as a church? The last category of people who are living solid food, eating solid food and mature, can I tell you this, and you're, and you're discipling, can I tell you this? Press on. Press on, man. It'll get tiring, and there will be times where your disciple will look at you in the face, and they will tell you, like, forget this. Press on. Press on. Don't get disheartened. Don't get weary. We have an amazing opportunity, and it's most seen in Ephesians 4. Put up Ephesians 4 for me. Look at this passage, and we'll close with this. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. We need to grow up, church. No longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. When the church gets serious about their call, you know what they do? They see young Christians and they love them. They get passionate about them. Isn't that right? They look at the young babes in Christ and they say, I don't want them to be tossed to and fro. I don't want them to be thrown out in culture and grabbed by the false teachings of a nice prophet even named Rob Bell who says, maybe there's not a hell. No, that's false doctrine. There is a hell. And young Christians, though, will just attach ourselves to things. What happens when the church says, no, 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 the young believers in this community need to be poured into and discipled and I will do it and I'll stop pointing at, at my finger at everyone else, waiting for everyone else. Because what happens then? By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, these people and an enemy are going after young babes in Christ. But there's so many of you who are young babes in Christ, yet you've been a babe for 10 years. Repent now. It's time to get off the milk. Cling to solid food. Own your expectation to be a teacher. And run from the craftiness of an enemy that will bring your mind into deceitful teaching. Let's stand together.